0: Welcome to John Longwell Media, creative multimedia including music, inspirational messages, and audio prose. Today's message is entitled, The Power of Worship, recorded on May 14, 2017, at Revive Church in Rio Rancho, New Mexico. I pray you will be blessed by the message as you listen. Here now is John Longwell. All right, good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Anybody here have a mom? Awesome. That's good. I was just making sure. We are very blessed. In fact, I want to pray for our moms before we uh, start our service today. Um, Even if you don't have kids, you probably have a mom role in some aspects. I know I've had many adopted moms throughout the course of my life, depending on the town that I live in, and so um, count yourself all included in this prayer. Father God, we do thank you so much for the, um, the blessing of moms in our lives. And uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would uh, that you would refresh them this day, Lord Jesus, that they would be able to just take time out today and just know how appreciated that they are and what a blessing that they are to all of them around them, Lord Jesus. And we just uh, speak your blessing and uh, thanks for them, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, um, you'll notice we have our worship music playing. We're going to be continuing our series in lyrics in the Word. And um, I've asked them to keep the music going because I love the ambiance that's created when we have that worship music playing. A lot of times in our house, we'll just have that playing in the background. I know that like, if I'm working on something, um, it can be distracting sometimes when the television's on or even if Top 40 music is on. It, but when worship is on, it just kind of draws me to that other place. And today we're going to be looking at three sections of scripture that truly exemplify the power of worship in our lives. And um, I'm going to give you these scripture references in advance so that you can go there. The first one that we're going to be looking at is in 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 14. I'll give you just a second to get there. As we go throughout the sermon today, I want you to fill in the blank with words that are personal to you that would complete this sentence. Worship has the power to... and then fill in the blank. Um, And some of the things that I have... Filled in the blank there is worship has the power to draw our hearts into an intimate encounter with God. It's not by mistake that the format of our Sunday service is praise and worship first and is a time of the word. You know, we all come into Sunday morning service with stuff from the week, even stuff from the day. Stuff that can be distracting, stuff that can be concerning to our hearts. And when we allow that time of praise and worship... It pushes that stuff aside, and it makes it a little bit easier for us to have that intimate encounter with um, the Lord of all the universe. The second thing that worship has the power to do is help us express our core devotion to our Creator. As Sean first started um, our series, he talked about the woman at the well, and um, he recited that scripture that there is now a time that those who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. Now we need to realize, and we really need to take inventory of the amazing time in which we live, which is that there is nothing separating us from our God. In the days of the Jews, when the Israelites were out wandering around, and when they first uh, became uh, a recognized people, they always had to go through the the prophet in order to to have that connection in that um, in that interaction with God. There's some religions today who really believe that it's only the role of the priest. That will allow you to connect with God. But we are called the priesthood of believers. We have all been given that blessed role of being able... In fact, the scripture says that we should boldly approach the throne of grace to help us in our time of need. And that is something that we really need to take advantage of because we're in a very unique situation. So some biblical examples of worship's power. The first one that I'm going to be going over in 1 Samuel is that worship has the power to... Calm our contrary nature. Now, a little bit of background with this little section of scripture. Here we have King Saul. Now, the, a little bit of history. The Israelites were people. They were freed from Egypt. They went through their long journey, their 40 days in the wilderness, and then they went in and they began to conquer the land. Well, once they got settled in the land, they they actually lost a, a great benefit that they had. Up until that time, they had prophets like Moses and Joshua and Samuel that were literally their They're representative between them and God. But they looked around at all these other nations and they said, you know what, we want a king. And so God finally relented and he said, okay, I'll give you a king. So he gave them King Saul, who at first glance was head and shoulders, looked like he was the perfect candidate. But as time and history were to tell, he became a very ungodly man. And as we pick up in verse 14, we're going to see just how ungodly he was because of God's response to him. 1 Samuel 16, picking up in verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So this is kind of an interesting thing that's going on. So at first Saul was in the office of king and the spirit of the Lord was upon him in order to be able to perform the functions of that office. But because of the the decisions that he made he became so ungodly in God's own eyes that God removed his spirit from him. And there was this void created within Saul's life that God actually, you could even say, he blessed having an evil spirit come in to terrorize him. He said, you've made these decisions, and now here is one of the results of these decisions. I'm going to allow an evil spirit to come in and terrorize you. Think of much the same situation when Satan approached God and said, consider your servant Job. He's very blessed, but I bet you if you allow me to test him, then I will be able to show you that he will have a different response to you. And so, one of the things that we can draw from this is that God is in control of everything. Even, sometimes it's a little bit difficult to understand, but God is in control of everything that goes on to us, even in the aspect that sometimes things that that are affecting us, they're from God, and they're there for a reason. And so, Saul's response to this, Saul's servant said to him, picking up in verse 15, He said, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you, let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the younger men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man. And the Lord is with him. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand. And Saul would be refreshed and be well. And the evil spirit would depart from him. That's a pretty powerful thing. Let me give you a little bit of the dynamics of how that worked. It doesn't mean that just because... The music started playing. That automatically, the evil spirit was pushed away from Saul. But what it did is, as a lot of us, when we're in those situations where we're we're very, you know, tormented, you turn on that music, you know. And sometimes, like for me, I um, I'll turn on classical music sometimes because it just has that 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 nice undertone, you know, the the strings and the piano, and it just sets that real soothing nature. And that's exactly what happened with Saul it allowed his mind to be less susceptible to those spirits that were there and ready to terrorize him. And another benefit, and this is so God, God uses everything in his economy for for every purpose and work. So Saul is calling in for David to come in and to be his harpist and to basically be the one that's going to provide this worship atmosphere within the, in the king's courtroom, um, in the king's court. But unbeknownst to Saul... David has already been anointed as the next king. You see, Saul, the kingdom has already been taken away from, from King Saul. It's, it's kind of this trickling process because David is eventually going to take over the throne. And Saul doesn't know this yet. Now David is just this, he's a shepherd. That's, that was his job, that was his role. And so he never had the opportunity of the natural, um, the natural lineage of being the, the, the prince and then becoming the king. And so God is giving him this opportunity to come into the daily activities of the king's court and to be mentored into all of those nuances of what it means to be king. Unbeknownst to Saul, under his his own nose is the next successor of the kingdom of Israel. So that's just a, another little neat thing that we can draw from this from this area of scripture. Now, the second thing that worship has the power to do is it has the power to refocus our hearts to hear from the Lord. And to speak to the Lord. And the scripture that we're going to be looking at here is 2 Kings chapter 3 and we'll be beginning in verse, verse 9. Now a little bit of background on this section of scripture. So now we, we've gone through, we've got kings that are ruling in Israel. Well as you go through the Old Testament you're going to see the very sad state of events. Which is that the, the kingdom of Israel is actually divided into two kingdoms. We have the kingdom of Israel and we have the kingdom of Judah. And the cyclical process that continues to happen in all of these kingdoms is, as you read through kings, you'll see that a king served God, um, and he did what was right in the sight of God for maybe 10 years, and he had God's blessing. Well, then there's another couple of kings, two or three, that you'll read about, that they did what was evil in the sight of God, and they went off and they worshipped these pagan gods of all of the, the nations around them. And so, here's that situation that we have. The king of Israel... His name is Jehoram. He is actually one of these ungodly kings who is always um, worshipping after the pagan idols. And then the king of Judah, his name is Jehoshaphat, he's actually a godly king that is, is truly seeking after the things of God. And as the, um, the kingdom is divided now, God is allowing the enemies of Israel to basically do battle with them because of their disobedience. And this is actually leading up into the time when they're going to go into captivity. And so now the, the kingdom of Moab is gonna, they, they have a huge army and they're gonna, they've launched a campaign of battle against, um, Judah and Israel and actually the kingdom of Eden. And so these three kingdoms form an alliance, even though they're not naturally united. It's kind of that old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so the, the kingdom of Edom, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah are now all in this alliance and they're going out to make war against the kingdom of Moab. And it was actually the king of Israel, the ungodly king, that first heard from God that they should go ahead and do this. And so we're going to pick this up in, in verse 9 of Second Kings chapter 3. It says, So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What? exclaimed the king of Israel. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here, through whom we may inquire of the Lord? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elijah said to the king of Israel, "Why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and your and the prophets of your mother." He's basically saying, "Why are you asking me? I'm good enough for you now, but oh, now you don't want to ask and inquire of your pagan gods." You can see that he's a little (laughs) is a little upset that they're even coming to ask him to help. And so this is the response of the king the king of Israel. He said, no, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Now, a little nuance that you actually have to, to look into this first. When I first read that, I was like, that is a very strange re- response. He's saying, oh, OK, God has called all of us together so that we can be delivered into the hands of Moab. Well, no one sets out intentionally to go to lose a battle. But in essence, he's saying, you know what? We're submitting to the will of God. It was God that called all three of us together. And even if that means that we are delivered into the hands of Moab to be defeated, if that's God's will, then so be it. And so Elisha then responds. He said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the godly king, I would I would not pay any attention to you, but but now bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elijah, and he said, "This is what the Lord says: I will fill this valley with pools of water. For this is what the Lord says: You will neither you will see neither winds nor rain. Yet this valley will be filled with water, and you and your cattle." And your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. So this is an amazing response. But I want I want us to look at the steps that that proceed up. It's it's always easy to just quickly rush through the scripture and not really take a moment to just kind of dwell in what it is that we're that we're reading here. So Elisha initially is just in his house, kind of doing his own thing. Now normally when a king would want to inquire of God, he would send for the prophet. The prophet would come before him and then he would seek God on his behalf. Here we have three kings that are going to the prophet's house. That was very uncommon in that day. And it was also kind of a sign of humility that they are really in need of this direction. And so Elijah, he's, he's finally, you know, he's, one, he's probably surprised. Two, he's a little bit annoyed that this ungodly king is asking him for advice. And so when he finally says, okay, I will agree to seek God on your behalf, he's saying, you know, <laughs> I always look at it like, you know, you see these, these old movies from the 80s where the business guys are there in the middle of the afternoon it's like, man, I need a drink before we have this meeting. This was kind of, this was kind of uh, Elisha's way of saying, I need to do something to calm my spirit. He goes, could you please bring in somebody that can, so we can do a little bit of worship before I go in and simply ask of God and inquire of God. And so the harpist comes in, he begins begins to, to play, and now... Elijah's heart is in a place where he can seek. He can pray to God and he can hear from God. And what an amazing word God gives. This is a miraculous thing. There was no rain. They're coming and they're camped in this deserted valley. And Elijah says, you know what? There's going to be pools of water. Enough for everyone in in your company. For your animals, for your horses, for all of your army. And not only that, but... God is going to give the kingdom of Moab into your hands. So we see the power of worship even just in being able to kind of get over that hurdle where Elijah needed to refocus his heart and his mind in order to hear from the Lord. Now I know myself, and I had mentioned earlier, that I focus better when music is playing in the background. I encourage, if you have the opportunity at work to put on some worship music, even if it's just, you know, softly in the background, or even in your home. Have that running, you know, just throughout the day. I know we go over to some of our friends' house, and they have, they have YouTube on with Bethel, or Hillsong. And it's just an amazing ambiance that's created within your home. I call it a holy perimeter. It's almost like, you know, you could draw a line. As far as that music can, can protrude out... Into into the public areas, you know we have our we have our security screen door open during the summertime. So t- sometimes I'll come home and I'll hear the music as I'm driving up into my driveway, and it is such a beautiful thing to be able to behold. The second thing that worship helps us to do is it helps us to get out of our own way so we can connect with God. And worship is amazing because. You know, sometimes, you know, I don't know if you've ever tried to pray and you feel like your prayers are just very empty. It's kind of like they just go out of your mouth and they just kind of fall to the ground. Worship gives us that ability to connect with God, spirit, little s, to spirit, big s, in a way that I can't even explain half of the time. It just, I'll hear hear a certain song, you know, one of the worship songs that we're getting ready to do. And before I even can set myself down to practice, I'm already in that time of worship. It's just, it's just such a beautiful thing. Now the last example that we're going to go over is an example of extreme power released when we worship in the midst of our greatest trials. And we're going to be looking at the story of Paul and Silas when they are in prison. And this is found in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, and this is Paul, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit, by which she predicted the future. Now, this was not a godly spirit. This was a demonic spirit that this young girl had. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Little side note, if if we can see in Scripture where fortune-telling abilities come from, then that should give you a good idea of things that you should stay away from. Tarot cards, Ouija boards, you know, those little things that they publish in the newspapers. Even, you know, the all of the... The, like the Pisces and the Virgo and the Scorpio, all of those little things, they come in as these little postcards that say, Oh here, just read this. This is just neat stuff that you can that you can relate to that will help you see. And and people go, Oh wow, I, I read my I read my algorithm or whatever it is, I read my thing the other day. And it was right on the money. You know, it's right on the money in, in a very demonic way because the enemy does have the ability to have spirits working in your life if you will let them. So guard your hearts Guard your minds to those things that you allow to come into your brain. So that was just a freebie. It wasn't even in certain Um <laughs> So anyway, it said she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. And she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. You know, at first that was probably a really cool thing. It's like, wow, we got our own little entourage here. We got this little girl kind of proclaiming all of the truth about us. Well, it was good for maybe about the first 15 minutes. And then it said, she kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of here. I often think of like, you know, you see the grandparents and the little grandchild comes up to them and they start asking the grandparent all these different questions. Like, why is the sky blue? Oh, you know, there's with the light of the sun and blah blah blah, And they're answering. And then they get to that, that cycle of, well, what? Well why? Well what? And then they're finally going, Why don't you go see your in the kitchen? Go up your dad in the garage. You know, just like, oh my goodness. And so this is so finally Paul and Silas have become flustered by this girl, even though she's saying the truth. It's like this broken record that's just constantly going on. And so they they cast out this evil spirit from this young girl. And at that moment it said the spirit left her. And when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and the Romans, I'm sorry, they brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Does that sound like truth? That sounds like revenge. They were, they were trying to be vindicated because they had lost their mail ticket. These guys had come in and basically silenced their little fortune teller. And so the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, a little bit of background on this. So here we have... Paul and Silas, they're stripped, which would be embarrassing enough, but then on top of it, they're beaten brutally, and then they're, and all of this because of a lie, and then they're thrown into prison, but not just prison, into the inner cell of the prison. Now, in the old olden days, this is this is all Roman run, and a Roman prison was basically set up, you, it's like a compound, and you have like a little guard shack where the guards would live and, and sleep, and then around that, are all of these cells, which are usually open to the air and to the light. Well, the inner cell, you could basically consider it's like a dungeon. It's usually on the lower level of the cell. You have to drop them down. There's no airflow. There's no light. And the prison cell usually runs adjacent to the sewer of the prison. So we've got all of these things coming together, and then to add increased misery on top of it, it said that their legs were shackled in this um, in these fetters. And if you think about that, think about the old colonial days where you used to see the colonists that got in trouble. They got their, their hands and their head through that wood device there. Well, this was a long piece of wood with these torturous shackles that were placed on their ankles, their legs were spread apart as far as they can go. And so they're in this situation and they don't know what what their outcome is going to be. But this is their response. And we'll pick up in verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Now I've often wondered, what what could have they have been singing? They didn't have Hillsong, they didn't have Bethel, or any of these great worship <laughs> You know, folks to listen to, but they had the psalms. And there's this very specific psalm that is almost written for their exact situation. And I want to read this to you. It's Psalm 119, and I'm going to be reading in verses 57 through 64. It says, The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. Now they're not just reading these words, they're singing these words. They're singing these words with passion. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Now this is the one that really applies to them. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, speaking of those shackles on their feet, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. That's just, that's just awesome. And so about midnight, Paul and Silas, they were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. It's almost as though they probably couldn't see them, but they could hear that music coming up from the ground. And they're like, wow, where is this amazing music coming from? And here was God's response to them seeking him in spite of the most horrendous trials they were going through. Verse 26, it says, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now, we were told earlier in the verse that this guard was told to watch these prisoners carefully. And usually in Roman law, when that kind of an instruction is given, it means if something happens to them and they escape, guess what? Something's going to happen to you, and it's probably not going to be very good. In fact, we can we can almost infer from this scripture that um, this guy was under a death sentence if, something, if these prisoners were to escape, because his response now in thinking the prisoners have escaped is he said, you know what, I would rather take my own life than to throw my... Myself at the unmerciful hands of the Roman leaders above me. And here was Paul's response. He could have had so many other responses, but here was Paul's response. Do not harm yourself. We are all here. They could have waited for the guard to kill himself and they could have simply walked right out of that prison. But the compassion of Christ was upon them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. Now I want us to I want us to not miss this. You know, we, we look at a, a timeline of events and choices that we can make. They could have very easily, just like I said, made that choice to just extricate themselves quietly. You know, you know, uh, escape from that prison under the the cover of darkness. But they didn't. They chose to interact with the very ones that were their their captors. It It was something so led by the Spirit of God, and something in response to that. They were already in that heart of worship before God. They were already connecting with God. They were listening to God. And that's why it's so important for us To be available to what the voice of the Lord would tell us because we don't know how God will use us to turn a situation around. I can't tell you how many times my wife has talked to me about her coworkers, how she's had friction within the past. Oh, I just, I have such a difficult time with this one person. And then two months later, her and this other lady are just best of friends because the Lord has moved on their behalf because of her just being open to the Spirit of God moving in her workplace. And it's just, it's so cool to see, and I almost just like, well, I'm just going to wait because I know this is going to turn around. It may be this way this time, but I know given time, she's so open to the to the movement of the Spirit in, in her place of, of work that it's just, it's just a wonderful praise report. And so the last couple of things that I'd like to leave you with are this. When we worship God, the Bible says, He inhabits, which basically means He sits enthroned upon the praises of His people. And this is found in Psalm 22. I'm just going to read the first five verses. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now it's interesting how a lot of these psalms are... They're basically these cries out of the, the calamity in which people are in. You know, it's like that wasn't written really like, Oh God, you're such a great God, you know, but these are, these are literal cries out, God, you, I feel like you're not there. Where are you? And he says, Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you, you do not answer. And by night, I have no rest. Yet you are holy. Oh, you are enthroned upon the praises of Israel in your father's in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come back up. We're going to um, we're going to conclude with one more worship song. But before I do that, I want to invite you as we sing this song. See, when we worship, we pull the glory of God down into the midst of whatever trial we are dealing with. Let me say that again. When we worship, we pull the glory of God down. And you know what? It's like the the Bible says that we can't serve two masters. And what's great is sometimes even when when we're in misery, when we're in depression, we are serving the master of misery. We're serving the master of sadness. Because sometimes, you know, sometimes there's an emotion that we have no control over. But sometimes when we stay in that place, we're choosing to stay in that place. Where God is saying, you know what, there are other options. And sometimes it's not easy to choose those options. But I want to encourage your heart to simply respond. And and there's no quick fixes. There's no formulas in the Bible. But I can honestly say that if I had a toolbox of Christian tools, I would consider worship as my crowbar. Because worship has had the ability to pry me loose from some of the most challenging And difficult trials that I have ever been in the midst of. And sometimes all it takes is just this. You begin to start that worship music, You begin to invite the spirit of the living God to come in. And say, God, I don't know where it is that I need to be. I don't even know how to take the first step in that direction. But I know I can respond to you. Worship is our core devotion created to serve and to respond to the God of the universe. As as Pastor Sean said, we're all created to worship something. It's what we choose to affix our gaze upon to worship. So when we worship, we pull down the glory of God into the midst of our trials. It's like the man that Jamie last week had, had talked about that wrote the song, It Is Well. He had lost his children. And yet in the midst of all of his trials, he said, you know what? My response is to choose God. Are you in the midst of something today? most likely probably you are maybe something small maybe it's something big you might be sitting there today and behind these two eyes you go you don't even understand what it is that I'm holding back it's everything i can do right now to keep from just breaking down and weeping because of because of the stuff that you're just that's even beyond your control and god would tell you this as we close in worship allow god's power to surround you allow him Dwell in the midst of whatever it is that you're dealing with. And don't let this just be a Sunday morning kind of thing. Allow this to be a practice. Allow this to be something that you put in your arsenal of tools that you can pull out at any time. If you've got a smartphone, if you've got a radio, you can turn on a worship station or worship music and just be still and allow the Spirit of the Living God to move you in a way that only God can do. We hope you've enjoyed this inspirational message. Please email questions, comments, and booking information for John to mail at johnlongwell.com. To see the full range of creative works, including books, inspirational messages, music, art, and web development content, please log on to www.johnlongwell.com. Thank you for listening. And may God's blessings be yours in abundance.